Hello and welcome to Grosvenor Britain and Ireland's new podcast series, Zeroing In. In each podcast, we'll be looking at different elements of sustainability related to Grosvenor's green goals. From waste and recycling to biodiversity and urban greening, we'll be interviewing various experts and specialists throughout the series as we explore sustainability, why it's important for GBI and what it means for you. This week, we are joined by Andy Haig, our new Director of Climate Positive Solutions, to talk about net zero carbon and what this means for the business, the planet, and most importantly, the communities in which we work. However, before we get going, I want to introduce you to the hosts of the podcast. I'm James Manning, Transformation Manager for Sustainability and Innovation at GBI. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Alex Clark. Alex, do you want to introduce yourself? Yep, thanks. So I'm Alex Clark, and I'm a graduate surveyor. As James has mentioned, we're joined by our very first guest today, Andy Haig, Director of Client Positive Solutions at GBI. So welcome, Andy, and thanks so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. And yeah, great to be here talking about our net zero carbon pathway and yeah, achieving our carbon goals. So um, let's dive straight in, Andy. Why is carbon an issue? We've all, we all hear about it in the news all the time. You hear about net zero. Boris Johnson has just announced that we want to reduce emissions by 80%, um, I think by something like 2035. And we're talking a lot about it, but physically, carbon or greenhouse gases, can you just explain a little bit around why it's so important we reduce it? Well, this will then be um, podcast one of 72 as we go through the latest climate <laughs> science. So yeah, sit down and get your notebooks out. Um, I mean, I think climate change is now a, a scientifically agreed phenomenon. Uh, man-made climate change has been validated and kind of there's, uh, it's been proven the fossil fuel industry are basically the only ones trying to fund the denialist campaign. So everyone knows that man-made climate change is happening, and that is through carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, creating a feedback loop, which is heating up the planet. And over the next 10 years, like the, the, this is dubbed a decade of change. Um, by the UN, that between 2020 and 2030, we have a unique opportunity to reduce the severity of climate change. We've already seen some effects of it, but the risk of if we don't make serious action now, the risk of a planet that's largely uninhabitable by the end of this century is, you know, it's real. And the science shows there are a few negative feedback loops of you know melting ice caps and kind of permafrost methane off-gassing that if we don't address the worst impacts today and over the next 10 years that we'll have a very very sorry looking planet for our children our children's children and there won't be a mayfair or a belgravia no well precisely you know as, as part of our uh, kind of climate risk work for um Another acronym here, TCFD, Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. So something we do as a, as a business is look at the, kind of the climate risk of our estate. And it's something we put, we put into our accounts this year. So we're actually looking at the risk of climate change on our operations. And it goes from, you know, overheating. It goes from like land subsidence or storm damage. But, you know, there's, there's a clear financial risk to damage to our estate from climate change regardless of the you know, geopolitical impacts of, of what could happen as well. So, I mean, we have to act in taking a leadership position 
we will hopefully mitigate the worst of those impacts on our business. But inevitably, the world is changing. We've got to move with it. In 2020, we launched our net zero carbon pathway. And I'm conscious that you've been in sustainability for some time now. You've worked at Foster and Partners, Canary Wharf Group, Sir Robert McAlpine um, in sustainability roles. I'd be really interested to hear what you think of our pathway coming from outside the business, but also having been in sustainability for some time. Thanks, James. Yeah, really interesting question. As you've said, I've kind of been around the bit, been around the block and um, worked in numerous roles in sustainability, uh, kind of in the built environment sector. And it's great to be part of the Grosvenor team. And yeah, my view on Net Zero Pathway is from what I've seen, and I, I helped deliver um, Canary Wharf as well, is that I think ours is probably the most progressive. And that's because we're taking full ownership of all of our climate impacts both those that we're directly responsible for, so for you know the heating and powering our buildings, but also all of our indirect impacts. So all those emissions associated with you know our supply chain, our tenants, but also those embodied in our, our development and refurbishment activities. And actually, those are d- indirect impacts are responsible for 94% of our carbon emissions. So us taking kind of a lead and tackling all of that, the impacts associated with our value chain really is industry leading. I think that's what sets us apart within the within the industry is kind of that ownership. And and just on that, really, and why do you think others have not committed to those indirect emissions and, and trying to address that, whether that's their tenants or their suppliers? What's been there? What's what's held them back, do you think? Because it's really hard. There's a lot of unknowns in there. You know, what's our supply chain over the next five years? By 2030, our supply chain could be completely different. So for us to take ownership of that and saying we're going to put in these requirements so our supply chain adheres to our net zero pathway, it could be very difficult because you can't just go and engage with the 1,200 suppliers we have today. You also have to think going forwards how that will change and go and engage with them and make sure you're writing it into the contracts. It's not suppliers, it's our tenants. You know, How do you address hard-to-abate uh, uh, sectors so you know the embodied impact of like the uh, concrete and steel industries you know we're trying to take full ownership of all of those um, sectors and it's it's hard and also it's an imperfect science right now you know people addressing their indirect impacts and trying to calculate that you've only been able to do that over the last kind of five ten years without any level of kind of clarity and it's still based on assumptions and as part of our strategy it's, you know, it's going to be a, a, a learning journey. I think another part of our leadership position is our commitment to be transparent around that, create sustainability forums for our tenants, creating partnerships with our suppliers, having kind of long-term engagement activities does help set us apart and make sure that this isn't a journey for our own benefit, but for kind of the benefit of everyone that we touch. So I guess to a certain extent, we don't have all the answers, but we acknowledge that and we are still prepared to commit and, and put ourselves out there and, and work towards these targets. Yeah. And you've got to take that bold step. And we are. And that's what I really respect about the business. And just on that, in terms of um, you mentioned it potentially being a very different scenario in, say, 2030, um, in terms of our supply chain and things, is there some kind of inbuilt flexibility into, say, our goals in terms of um, how we might might approach them? Would that be something that changes over time? Do you think? 
Yes, definitely. Uh, there is flexibility in how we tackle our impact. There is also kind of a buffer in terms of how far we think we can push our kind of commitment around this. But importantly, we don't just, we haven't just set goals, we also have the tools to deliver against it. That's another area that I think sets us apart is that in our pathway, we don't just have a few graphs of where we think we're going. We actually talk about how we have the different tools and levers, you know, like the green leases, like our retrofit fund to really help drive that change. So yes, there is flexibility. There's also a lot of uncertainty, but we're kind of, we're planning and we're, we're actioning now what we think we need to do to, to help get us there. And as every year goes on, that uncertainty will diminish. Um, so I think we're in a good position. And I know that you were heavily involved in developing Canary Wharf Group's net zero calm pathway as well. I think one of the things, I mean, even I struggle sometimes, and I'm in the sustainability team, is how does how do this big picture target these big impressive tools? How does that relate to me on an individual basis in my day-to-day role? How can people try and navigate that a little bit? Yeah, a really interesting question. And I think the, the first port of call is that each department's got their own roadmaps. And within there, there are quite a few kind of clearly defined kind of KPIs and targets um, across a range of initiatives that some might be more beneficial or more suited to kind of your role and what you do and deliver uh, on a day-to-day basis. But yeah, I guess the first point of call would be to look at that and engage with your manager and or, and or the sustainability team um, if you have any kind of follow-up questions because we're here to help as well to kind of better understand what you can do and how it might affect impact you. I was going to say as well, I think we don't, we, we, we have a lot of the answers and we're able to provide a lot of guidance, but I think we can also point you in the direction of places that you can find out more yourselves. We can give you some of the tools and, and knowledge or places you can find the knowledge to actually upskill yourselves as well. So I think there's an element of taking responsibility. And going back to my kind of earlier point around our bold action, it does require everyone to be upskilling themselves and there aren't always going to be the answers there yet because we're at the bleeding edge of this. And, uh, you know, for our green leases, we're coming up with questions that haven't necessarily been answered before in, in the industry. And so we're confronting this on a day-to-day basis. Same, same with our, uh, you know, energy savings fund. How you embed that, you're learning at the same time that we're learning. And as part of our leadership position, we need to be communicating the success of that across the industry, but also communicating the failures. And we will have failures along the way, but we're learning some hard lessons and hard truths, or we will be, I'm sure, as time goes on. You've got to try something new sometimes. We've got to push the boat out and, and try something different with the knowledge that actually sometimes it won't always work. And actually that can be almost as valuable as, as something being successful is what can we learn from the failures and the difficulties that we've, we've experienced. Yeah, please don't try this again. It's just as useful as, yes. oh, this is a great idea. Go and do that. 100%. 100%. And I think others can learn as well. It's, it, sustainability is such a, a matter for collaboration. Um, we're not going to do it on our own, for sure. I was thinking it might be worth, um, in a way, kind of stepping back to the core aim of the 2030 goals, at least, which is this, this idea of the net zero carbon what the terminology actually means because i suppose you have net zero carbon being a term that's used a lot but also carbon neutral and it'd be really good to understand what the difference between those two things are and also why it's net zero carbon that we've chosen to aim for for 
for that time period? Yeah, and that is actually a really important question because all this terminology gets banded around a lot. And I think people are getting confused between what each one means. And I think at the moment we're seeing in the industry different people using the terminology incorrectly at the disservice of what others are trying to achieve. Um, so very simply, carbon neutrality is just about offsetting. So it's about finding out what your emissions are and then going and buying a carbon offset on the open market and offsetting those impacts. So there's no requirement to reduce your impact. There's no requirement to you know, reduce your energy or improve your energy efficiency, reduce your carbon emissions uh, first. It's just going and buying some offsets. So it's kind of a tax for your lifestyle or your business activities. Net zero carbon says that first you have to do everything in your power to limit the emissions associated with your activities. And you have to do that with the latest climate science without getting too technical, um, <laughs> to limit global warming to a 1.5 degree warmer world. So there's something called science-based targets, which helps you understand that trajectory. And for us, that means that we've got to reduce our absolute emissions by 52% from 2019 to 2030. And we've just, am I right in saying we've just signed off science-based targets as well? No, that's what we've validated our pathway with. Yes. And yeah, very recently, we've literally just had our pathway validated by science-based targets. So that's helping to prove and show the transparency and, you know, what we've set out to deliver is based on the kind of the latest and best climate science and that we are helping to limit global warming to kind of a 1.5 degree warmer world. So yeah, science-based targets proves that absolute reduction. And then to achieve net zero, you then offset the remainder. So over the next 10 years, well, up to 2030, we're going to reduce our absolute emissions by 52%. And then we'll offset that remaining 48% to achieve net zero. So carbon neutral is just buying an offset. Net zero is doing everything you can to reduce your impact and then offset the, the rest. And then science-based targets, that sits on top in terms of the validation. Is that right and for net zero? Yes. So that is uh, an external certification to prove that our pathway for absolute emission reductions is in line with climate science. And it's, it's only, what, a thousand companies in the world that have signed up and been validated by science-based targets? Yeah. So in 2020, they moved over the thousand mark. So we're, we're, we may be a thousand and seventeen or something by now, but <laughs> it, it's, it's a slip over a thousand. But as part of our target and as part of our commitments, that I said, engaging with our supply chain, we're going to be really pushing science-based targets with our supply chain as well and our key high-impact suppliers. So that's something that we're going to be doing going forward is actually, you know, we've taken this leadership approach and we think it's the best approach and we want to engage those kind of key suppliers to join us in that journey. And that involves validating their decarbonisation pathways and we think science-based targets is a good tool for that. And in, in terms of this science-based target, kind of initiative is this something that is then easily transferable to say fields outside of the built environment so say we have tenants that focus a lot more on I don't know you mentioned the legal side for example um, is that something that can be used by them in some way yeah so it's any company of any size shape or form so it could be a retailer it could be you know a multinational it could be an independent coffee shop um, and anyone in between I think that's the value behind it Obviously, the smaller you get, 
you know, we have the resources and the in-house kind of knowledge and capability to kind of really set these targets. But as we go to our supply chain, I think inevitably there'll be some that might require a bit more hand-holding. For us, I mean, I'm definitely not saying it was easy, but it's something that we could, you know, genuinely do ourselves. Whereas as we kind of go out to our supply chain, I think a key portion of it will be this kind of education and support to help them along that journey. So one thing we, we'd we like to just get a view on from everyone we speak with on the podcast is, um, it's a bit of a classic question, is if you asked people to do one thing to help tackle climate change, what would that be? For me, the one biggest thing is to move away from red meat. So farming and more importantly, kind of cattle farming and uh, red meat production has a huge, huge impact um, on global warming from deforestation to kind of the methane production of cows and actually the kind of the, the feedstocks and the arable land that goes into feeding these, these big animals. So the biggest impact for me and the, probably the easiest win is to move away from red meat. I used to have steak and chips every time I went to the pub but it's pretty rubbish quality steak. So it's not actually difficult to go and try and find a, a better option. But then also, I think actually for me, the really big thing is just to stop and consider your impacts. So there are so many small decision-making points over the course of the day. Do I drive two kilometers to go pick up my kids from school because I can't be bothered to go and enjoy a nice 15-minute walk? You know, when I'm shopping, am I buying a, a throwaway T-shirt that's costing 15 quid for Primark rather than taking more of a buy once, buy right attitude and saving and investing it in a higher quality piece of uh, clothing that you'll treasure and look after for longer? You know, we have lots of small, tiny decisions that we make over the course of a day, which save up and have huge impact. I agree. We talk about it a lot in the office, particularly before lockdown, not, not so much now, but things like printing. I think just thinking before, do I need to print that? As you say, it's, it's all about the little things that you may not think have an impact, but ultimately it all adds up and it all comes together to, to result in uh, the many tonnes of carbon that we each contribute to every year. And there, there's a fantastic WWF carbon calculator. There's many out there, but that's just one. Of, and just end to answer a few questions around your lifestyle and actually get a bit of a snapshot on okay, what is my impact on the environment? And actually, what are some of the things I could do to reduce that? And you mentioned earlier, red meat is, is, is an easy one to do. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to completely cut it out, maybe. But making reductions or, or making small changes definitely can have an impact. Yeah, I mean, it's in my job title. I, I should be fully vegan now, but I do occasionally have a McDonald's <laughs> burger. I do occasionally you know, have a steak tartare here and there. Like, you know, there's always a, a margin there. And I think just doing better, is the most important thing. We're not Mother Teresa. We just need to kind of do better and be more responsible of those decisions. And those tiny decisions massively add up. Thanks so much for joining us, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's been really, really, really insightful. And we look forward to putting out our next podcast, which will be on the next of Grosvenor's Green Goals. Um, thanks for listening. <laughs>